Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So that brings us to step four, uh, learning my suffering story. Uh, Gary and Mona Shriver, uh, she says, How many people knew about the affair? I didn't know and never would know. I felt as if I were wearing a sign that read, Not good enough. Uh, God, I need a miracle here. You are the great healer. Heal us. Let me wake up from this nightmare. We're sitting here breathing. And yet, as surely as there is air moving in and out of my lungs, I know we're dying. But I want to know why I have to die when the sin is not mine. I didn't do this. In my weary brain, there are only three alternatives. Lying to myself, being lied to, or pain. If there was no pain, someone must be lying. I mean, you begin to hear the heart of the suffering story. Which really in step four, what we want to do is, what are those messages that we are taking from this event, from the sin of our spouse, that it's these messages that are going to have the biggest plaguing effect on our personal life and on our marriage. And you can hear her even trying to make sense of her experience using the gospel. I want to know why I have to die when the sin was not mine. She knows something, someone must die for sin. She's looking for that. Yet, but what we begin to live is a disrupted story. Uh, and suffering that's not rooted in deceit, it has an advantage. It happens in the present. If my house burns down, that's happening now. I can respond to it now. When infidelity happens, when pornography has been happening and I didn't know it, it's suffering that happened embedded in deceit. When it's breaking news for me, it's then. It's part of my past. It's as if somebody got into my story, they ripped pages out, and they wrote stuff in, and I don't know what's in my own story anymore. And that's what makes it so easy for all of these Lies and half-truths and disruptive themes to come in because I don't know my story. We, re- we, we approach our own story like we were reading a novel. And we want to know what happened. What happened to cause that? A novel where they give you the end before the beginning and you're reading along to figure out how we got here. I begin to live my life that way. We become... Like uh, the child that I heard uh, who was adopted. He was adopted uh, when he was about three. And he would ask his parents the questions when they looked at Christmases and things of that nature. Do I remember that? There's this sense of this is, this is my family. This is my picture album. I should be in there. I'm not. Do I remember that? 
it it feels very disrupting. Now, uh, to help us take that further, uh, Doug Rosenau, uh, in terms of understanding this suffering story, he says, quite often, I hear in counseling, if he loved me, he wouldn't have had an affair. I sadly respond, he loves you and he had an affair. Oftentimes, what we want is something to make those things that are very complex and overwhelming simple. We want that just because we want something we can hold on to. And overly simple explanations are just that. Overly simple explanations. And I think it is oftentimes easier to hear that in a room like this. Uh, There are certain things that are just easier to hear in a large group setting than they are one-on-one. To hear that my spouse may have loved me and still had an affair. What they did was not loving. They did not love me well at all, obviously. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they did not love me. Now with that comes what Winston Mark Lassar. He says, couple shames makes them feel as if they have had a bad marriage and that people won't want to associate with them. And here I want to emphasize the importance of community throughout the process. Because one of the things that can also happen, and I see it frequently in counseling couples in this kind of situation, is they reach a happy ending. They reach a point where they have um, resolved these issues. But they had an isolated process to that happy ending. And what it does is it tarnishes it. They begin to feel like they can't share their story. Nobody who knows them really knows them. They begin to carry this sense of shame. And that, that's why, to some degree, that sense of community that we talked about back in step one, that there are people who walk with us, who can know us and still care about us, is vitally important. We... I would say it this way, we must become a community that celebrates restoration more than we shame sin. That's why a resource like this that we put together, we invite our small group leaders to come. Because where these things are often going to hit and be found out is in small group. That doesn't mean small groups have to handle this on their own, but it means small groups are going to be affected by this. And as the Summit Church... We want to be known as a church that cares, as a church that understands, and as a church that is willing to be involved. And so often when we get help in complete isolation from any sense of community, the message that gets reinforced is that the church doesn't care. The church really doesn't want to know, much less understand. The church doesn't want to be involved. And we wind up not only grieving the effects of our marriage, uh, but upon the life of what we had in our church and we feel like we may never have again. Uh, Here's a a case study testimony uh, from a lady that Stephanie Carnes calls Tiffany. Tiffany says, uh, Tiffany could not believe what she just heard. After all the sexual improprieties her husband Jason engaged in, he was blaming her for his acting out. According to Jason, Tiffany was critical, blaming, non-supportive, and wasn't meeting his sexual needs. Again, the more he distances himself or her, this isn't a male thing only, uh, the more those things are going to come out. Um, 
But it says examples of impaired thoughts for co-addicts include, I deserve to be treated this way. I can't do any better. If I was performing better sexually, this wouldn't have happened. Many co-addicts, even before marrying a sex addict, have come believe that sex is the most important sign of love. This makes them the perfect partner for the sex addict, who usually believes that sex is his or her most important need. And again, I think we can unplug that from the language of sexual addiction and just say that the need-based language in which we often teach relationships makes sex seem like that pinnacle need. It is the most important thing in such a way that in our Christian circles, we inadvertently reinforce this kind of message uh, much more uh, than we aim to. And so if we say our suffering story, what are some themes that we can begin to hit? Uh, Some of the themes, and as you hear these themes, here's what I would encourage you to think. How do I use this to make sense of what my spouse did? Because if I use this theme to make sense of it, it's going to be this destructive undercurrent that no matter how right we get everything else in terms of ending the sin, this undercurrent is going to deteriorate the marriage. One is that something is wrong with me. It assumes that my excellence is the only barrier between my spouse and sin. I have to get things right enough that they won't sin. Another way of saying that is, this is my fault. It, you know, in some ways, that's one step further. Um, it, it moves from my weakness explaining your badness. My deficiency explains your depravity. Um, again, it makes everything that I would do to bless the marriage a form of pornography and adultery prevention. And those things that were meant to be blessings become rooted in fear. Another way that we can, can, another theme we can use is, if you loved me, then. Um, And again, we said, when you look at pornography or you have an affair, you are obviously not loving your spouse well. But when this becomes the predominant theme that we use to explain the situation, what we've done is we've taken this scene and we've used it to define the movie. Uh, I'm not a huge movie person, uh, but I've seen enough movies to know you can start any movie with a tragic scene, and it can become a beautiful movie. And you can start any movie with a beautiful scene, and it can end tragic. No scene has to define the entire movie. But when we get into the, if you loved me, then undercurrent, then it makes this the defining scene of our marriage. We can begin to say trust is dangerous or naive. And here I would simply say premature trust is dangerous and naive. But at the same time, trust is the soul's rest. And if we begin to live our life story as if trust were dangerous, then we're going to have no rest from that point forward. We can do the sex's ultimate theme. Uh, And again, at that point, sex becomes so important that it overwhelms the marriage and that sense of resentment and just we'll never be able to get it right enough can often come in. Because when sex is the focal point, sex can't hold up under that. Uh, When sex is the celebration of something larger than sex, sex can be what sex was intended to be. Some ways we can 
look at sex as if it is the ring of power, like in the movie Lord of the Rings, uh, where, um, and again, we admit sex is powerful. Sex is pleasurable enough that it has power, but sex can't be about power. Um, and the problem is, is when we view sex as that ring of power that we can use to make things happen, we become like each of the characters in the Fellowship of the Ring. We've become so consumed by our definition of good that it winds up becoming something bad and it destroys us at the same time. Maybe we use the theme, I am the unwanted one. And we just, we place that label and that becomes the character that we play throughout the rest of the movie. Maybe we get into the life would be easier if theme. And here, honestly, we're usually just looking for quick relief. We start things, saying things like, life would be easier if I just went ahead and got divorced. Life would be easier if my spouse had just left with his or her adultery partner. Life would have been easier if we'd never gotten married in the first place. Life would be easier if I was still ignorant of their sin. Um, but each of these if statements carries the same advantage of being fiction as the kind of relationship uh, that our spouse escaped to in their betrayal. Um, maybe the theme that we use is intensified male and female stereotypes. And we say, this is just what men or women do. And gender almost becomes an enemy. And usually with this theme, we begin to incorporate these unhealthy rules of relating. Uh, because there's certain things that you have to do in order to please and not be hurt by members of the opposite sex. And because they are dangerous, the rules have to be unhealthy. And so at that point, the rules inevitably become self-fulfilling. Uh, and it becomes that undercurrent that even when we're trying to get everything else right, this theme wrecks the ship. And finally, another theme is just everything is second class now. In some ways, this is the best case and worst case scenario. I really think we can work on the marriage and things will be better, but no matter how good things are, it's just kind of met with a sigh. It could have been that much better. And one of the things that I hope we see as we get to that point of seeing the gospel story is that, that God's redemption is bigger than even these kind of dark and very painful sins. Now, when I walk through those kinds of themes, it might be very easy for you to begin to think, he just wants me to be unemotional. He just wants me to remove all of these themes, and I'm not supposed to be upset. Whenever I get upset, it's just because I'm letting one of these unhealthy themes get in, and now, okay, it's not my responsibility to make my spouse not sin. It's just my responsibility not to get upset, and I've got to look out for all of these themes. I think he gave me ten of them. That's just that's too much. Hear these words from Gary and Mona Shriver. I was angry. Gary and his partner had repented and been forgiven. They could move on with their lives. Well, I couldn't. And I resented the fact that I had not committed the sin, yet I still had to carry the pain. Why didn't they just run away together? And by now, I could have been moving on with my life instead of being stuck. It le and you hear the fog there. I just want you to hear, and then she, she turns. Uh, well, she's a little more foggy. At least I would have, uh, wouldn't have had to suffer in silence. Everyone would have known if they had run off. 
and she gets a moment of clarity. She says, even as I thought these things, I knew, the, I knew the absurdity of them. We all suffered. We were all suffering. But it was unfair. And then here the fog rolls back in. No one ever wanted to have an affair with me. There was no one, there had been no desire so strong that I had risked everything to satisfy it. Gary had risked everything and everyone for her. What did he risk for me? Maybe I wasn't worth having. Maybe I should just disappear. And I read that quote here simply to say that at this stage as we are wrestling with it, there is going to be that kind of wave and clarity, fog in, fog out, that moment where we hear ourselves thinking and we catch ourselves and we can find one of those themes and go, yes, this is where I'm taking it. And then our thoughts go there again. And so, it, here is our goal uh, at the end of step four. It's honesty about where we are without getting lost in the suffering story. And when you ask me, what does that look like? Uh, I would summarize it this way. It looks like expressing your hurt as hurt instead of your hurt as anger. When, because most often when we are angry, we're really hurt. Um, and I've often heard the term secondary emotions used, and if I'm honest with you, for a long time, I just thought it was counselor psychobabble. Um, but I've had it explained in a way that I thought was truly helpful. A primary emotion is the way that I feel about a given event. A secondary emotion is how I feel about feeling that way about the event. And so when my children go running to the road, my primary emotion is fear. When I have to fear about my children's safety, my secondary emotion is anger. Secondary emotions are almost always stronger and safer than primary emotions. And they usually overwhelm to where in that moment, if you'd ask my kids, is your daddy scared or is he mad? They would say mad. And that's the nature of secondary emotions. They are stronger and they overwhelm the primary emotions. As we recognize the suffering story, our goal is to pull them apart well enough that we can express hurt as hurt instead of hurt as anger.